Welcome back to another episode of the Quantum Cast. I'm your host, Ryan Kia, and today we're going to be beginning a new mini series called Coca Cola, the multinational conglomerate that happens to be one of the most valuable brands on the planet. But the question is, how will it fare in an increasingly health conscious society? But before we look at the modern day, we must first go back to the roots of Coca-Cola, and not just as a company, but also as a brand that beholds a unique secret formula. This formulation that makes the wonderful drink known as Coca-Cola to us today. You can just pop open a a bottle or a glass of Coca-Cola or even a can these days, and you'll be completely at peace. Or at least that's the vibe we get from the marketing campaigns. You can sit back, open your Coke, relax, and everything is okay. So an important year to note is 1886. That's when the inventor of what we all know as Coca-Cola, John Pemberton, was an intelligent pharmacist, and he actually sold that secret formula to Asa Candler. After this sale took place in 1888, after the sale had been completed, Asa Candler had begun an intense campaign to sell Coke to every soda fountain that he could. Just to clarify what soda fountains are, assume you go into a fast food restaurant or a takeaway and you want a soft drink. They get the drink and they dispense from something that's called a soda fountain. And soda fountains back in the 1800s and the 1900s, almost at the early 1900s, were basically bars that you would go to to get soda drinks dispensed. And these dispensaries used to be one of the largest contributors to Coca-Cola's revenue as a company. This was before they had begun to bottle, which we'll talk about over the next couple of episodes, when they had bottled their produce and then they'd started using glass bottles in particular. But what they had begun, as was a company that had been selling the syrup to dispensaries, and the beauty was they were beating competitors because they were doing all of this at a fixed cost. Their price wasn't really changing that much. If they had a contract, they would stick to it, they wouldn't change. So for dispensaries, prices would only change if their other costs were to rise. That was the beauty of dispensing Coca-Cola at the time. People would only then drink Coca-Cola drinks from glasses in these dispensaries, just to clarify. So, after the campaign had begun, many people had come to these dispensaries, they'd order a glass of Coca-Cola, watch a pharmacist mix an ounce of syrup with five and a half ounces of carbonated water. They then drank it on the premises. They could drink it fast or they could drink it slow, but they had to drink it inside an establishment, like the Pendrug Company in Sydney, Iowa, or the original source, Jacob's Pharmacy in downtown Atlanta. A lot of people would actually dress up to have a Coca-Cola. It was a formal occasion. They would sweep into pharmacies wearing their Sunday best, first in Atlanta, then across the south. Candler made it his business to make sure that every drugstore with a soda fountain of any size was offering Coke by name. There were plenty of competing syrups as well. We could think of Pepsi as an example. At the time, Pepsi was a little bit later, but uh, that story is a little bit separate. You had pharmacists preferring to mix their own. So the job of Candler wasn't that easy to sell something that could be copied easily. But one pharmacist had actually rallied against the octopus that is fastening itself on the soda fountain trade, which was a quote used 
to warn his fellow soda sellers against what he called patent drinks like Coca-Cola, those of which will have complete power over the dispensaries and to not display them more than is necessary. He actually said it does not require any great expenditure to concoct these drinks, basically, to make them. And it is easier and more profitable to concoct your own speciality than to push somebody else's, which is very interesting. But even with this, Candler persisted. Drugstores were perfect locations in which to promote a drink he had embellished with health claims. He actually advertised Coke as a brain tonic, something that could quote-unquote cure headaches and exhaustion and it would also act as a quote-unquote nerve tonic something that could calm the most jangled 19th century sensibilities pretty soon candler whose first name comes from the hebrew word for physician had made coke into a 19th century mega brand in 1889 the coca-cola company sold 2171 gallons of syrup to fountains just five years later these sales had actually soared all the way to 64,000 gallons. And we must note that per gallon, you can make 400 bottles of Coke. If we're talking about glasses, back in the day, we'd assume it would probably be the same. They may have used a little bit more syrup. Who knows if the health standards were as high as they are now back then. But one interesting thing is, if we look in the modern day, before we even continue the story of the roots, if you look at these new Coca-Cola cans, they're getting smaller and smaller. And as a result of these decisions, Coca-Cola has been able to reduce their costs, get their costs lower and lower, squeeze them down to the point where they're able to get better margins. Well, what they've done now, if you go into a local Sainsbury's, if you're in the UK or in the US, we don't know if it's there, but uh, if it is, you'll see these really tiny Coke cans or just soft drink cans. I've seen a Sprite before they could be selling for 35 pence in the UK, I've seen in comparison to the cans that would have been 39 pence. Half the volume has basically been taken out, yet the price is only reduced by uh, 10% or so. That is very impressive in terms of a sales technique because it didn't cause any uproar. People actually want smaller quantities because this era is very health conscious. But back in the day, they didn't really want that. So you probably would have had larger portions, larger wastage, and the business would have had room to make more profit in the long run. If we take a step back to when we talked about the marketing campaign or more so the dispensary domination plan back in the late 1800s, one thing that we should probably note is that merely covering the sugar craving south with Coke was not enough for Candler. And by 1895, he would actually tell his shareholders that Coca-Cola is now sold and drunk in every state and territory in the US. And it was true. The result of his own winning formula, not the one that he uh, bought, because obviously that wasn't his formula, but the combination of easy promises, free samples, and a willingness to partner with anyone he thought seemed like a decent business prospect. One of the greatest prospects in the opinions of those who have looked back over the history of Coca-Cola as a company and have hypothesized as to what was a major cause or what were some of the factors contributing to the global dominance status of the company. Well, one of the people that had been drafted by Asa Kandler to help him in his quest was a man by the name of Joseph Biedenhahn, a Mississippian who had owned a candy company in Vicksburg. 
This was a city that had been besieged by Union troops in a civil war, and it was a site of a defeat. So at that time, Beden Hahn got into the Coca-Cola business after the surrender of Vicksburg, and actually remained a painful memory for his clientele. So to get them distracted, what would you do? Sell Coca-Cola to them, and hopefully try and distract them. In fact, at Asset Candler's urging, Biden Hahn became a Coca-Cola syrup dealer in 1890, accepting five gallons of syrup that at the time came in wooden barrels. His role was to supply all of the fountains in the area around Vicksburg, and it did keep him busy, so that was a nice thing to see. And the local fountain in 1890s America was like a social center, as mentioned earlier. It was something, or more so a place, where drinks were served from glasses set in silver-plated holders by a pharmacist who wore a white jacket, almost like a bartender, but a pharmacist version, and a black bow tie on the steamiest summer days. Ingesting something in such a setting actually implied that there were health benefits to be had by doing so, and the fountains provided a refuge, something like a refuge where people could sit down drink soft beverages or stand up with the arm resting on the bar and drink those beverages, engage with another without reproach. They were open to men, women and children. And now we look for the domino effect to come into play. Other industries had developed to supply these syrups, ice creams alongside them and carbon dioxide. There was a soda fountain required at the time because Coca-Cola, as we mentioned, hadn't put them into glass bottles themselves. They just provided the syrup, something like from concentrate. And they also needed the trappings of business, nice counters, silver spoons and strainers, huge displays of fruit and flowers evoking luxury as well as health because that was the deception that the brand was selling at the time. While soda fountains had become a national habit, something like in this modern day where we go and get a cup of coffee from Costa if you're living in the UK, or I know Starbucks if you're in the US, just a really stereotypical trend. Well, soda fountains were the thing around the 1800s. They were evolving over the next 75 years from bland countertops stocked with jugs of plain soda water to elaborate installations in which dozens of areas had blossomed from marble and mahogany-panelled walls. Some really classy stuff. It makes you want to kind of adjust your cufflinks or just move your tie from side to side if you're a fella, just to feel the luxury right there. They were always democratic. Everybody was classy and relaxed with each other. There were many pictures. If you Google a soda fountain, you can probably see one of the first ones. The final thing we'll talk about before this episode clears up is the gutsy idea in, I believe, 1876. There was an entrepreneur by the name of James Tufts, and he had paid $50,000 to exhibit his soda fountain at the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia. That is crazy, right? Because back in that time, that was a lot of money, a huge investment for a little bit of marketing. Well, long story short, Tufts had actually said it was successful and it did beyond expectation. He came out there 20 years later, a mega successful businessman. Why so? Because a lot of people had, in fact, 
forget a lot of people, thousands of people had returned home after that centennial exposition and had begun demanding state-of-the-art soda fountains in their towns too. It was so successful that Tuss became a very wealthy man indeed. Now how does this relate to Coca-Cola as a company? Well, with the growing presence of soda fountains, individuals were starting to judge the drinks and they wanted to find out which one was the best one. Well, the one that was growing in terms of its presence had happened to be Coca-Cola. Coke was essentially a rising star and to combat the competition, they wanted to keep growing. Now, how were they going to do that? In the next edition of this series, we'll be looking at some of the reasons why and hopefully progressing across the timeline as right now around the 1880s, 1890s, as we get into the 1900s, things get a little bit more interesting. As we approach war period, we might be able to talk about some marketing schemes that worked in the favor of the company. The basic timeline is the founding in 1886, gallons of syrup being huge in 1891, kind of area, then bottling, then syrup plants, Candler losing Coca-Cola, the bottles designed, the Olympics, World War II and Coca-Cola, the world wanting to buy a Coke in terms of an international marketing campaign, the new taste, which we could talk about, the failures and also successes gained from that, the polar bear and counting more drinks. There are so many things we could talk about. And in our series, this is going to be the timeline of what I'd mentioned. That is the order. But thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to sign up on our website at quantumresearch.co.uk for more financial content. We have a lot of episodes already on our site. We are on 59, I believe, right now. And we have things regarding investment returns, analysis of shares, trade setups. We've got charts that can be accessed by our members. It's free to sign up. Once again, the website's quantumresearch.co.uk. I've been your host, Ryan Kier. Thank you so much for listening. Episode two is dropping soon. Until next time.